I guess I should have mentioned that earlier that um, we so, so appreciate um, those of you that uh, gave for the building program or pledged to give over the next two years. Uh, it was overwhelming, your kindness, your generosity, uh, what we know is sacrificial giving for most people. And um, I don't want to steal the punchline, which you'll get to hear in big church here in a little bit, but uh, um, I, I think we're going to be able to build a parking lot. So that's that's pretty cool. So anyway, Don, um, one of our elders, uh, Don Dietrich, will be giving an update on our building report and um, on uh, in the worship service. And, uh, and again, there, there's other things. Um, We'll have a congregational vote here in a couple of weeks and, and some other things that you'll, you'll get briefed on that. But just for now, just be encouraged in that and thank the Lord. And uh, it's, uh, it's just incredible. So, Okay, with that in mind, uh, speaking of incredible, let's turn to God's Word, shall we? And let's dive into the most incredible book on the planet. And I will start the PowerPoint here for your viewing pleasure. And there we go. So uh, let's, uh, let's look at where we've come, shall we? Uh, turn back in your Bible to James chapter 4. That's where we're going to pick it up today in our verse-by-verse study through the book of James. Uh, remember, we're on kind of a new semester system in the Grace Bible Institute, so uh, we will conclude our study uh, probably sometime in April, and then we'll have maybe a message or two uh, there um, uh, in transition, and then we'll be announcing our summer classes here in just a couple of weeks, so you can be thinking about uh, what uh, looks helpful or interesting to you. And um, uh, David Gibson will conclude his uh, intro to the Bible class, and then we'll have some summer classes as well. Uh, Don's class, uh, being the Psalms, a very long book, uh, will be a multi-semester class, so if you want to jump into the Psalms, uh, midway, that's certainly fine too. So, uh, well, where have we been in James? You remember James is addressing uh, really the first generation of Christians, right? These are brand new, right out of the uh, spiritual nursery, uh, brand new Christians, and there's no Bible to guide them. There's no New Testament. Probably most of these people would not have had a copy of the Old Testament, right? That was something that you went to synagogue to hear. Uh, and uh, you didn't have the convenience of just walking home with your own scroll or anything like that for most people. So James is writing in, in the 40s, the, the, the mid-40s of the first century, right? Jesus lived to about 33 A.D., we think. So th- this is in the shadows of the, uh, the ministry of Christ. Of course, he's ascended, he's gone back to heaven, and now James is writing to provide instructions to the early church. And, and you know how it is. You know, how many of you have sent a kid off to college before? You ever done that before? Okay. And, and I've, I've not had the privilege of doing that just yet, although that's upon us here. Um, but I, I remember as I was packing up my little, uh, my little, uh, Honda Civic hatchback and I had my mountain bike on the back and stuff hanging out and I was heading off to Arizona to go to college. My parents were out there and, you know, and, oh, and one more thing and don't forget this and, and, right? And it's just it's one more thing. It's one more thing. It's one more thing. And you kind of get the idea. That's what James is doing here, right? He's got so much to tell his audience in a, in a short letter and, and he's just boom, 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 and another thing and another thing and another thing, right? Cause he has, he has so much material to cover thinking about the challenge challenges that these early Christians face. And of course, not just challenges that, that, that Christianity is new and, and there's no documented instruction yet, 
But uh, there's this first wave of persecution that's happening. So they're trying to figure out how to walk with God, and they're trying to deal with the realities of, you know, families that have alienated them and and employers that have fired them and, and, and pressure being put on their families, on their children, to where they've had to scatter from the region of Jerusalem uh, to the north and to the west where they would resettle there. So he, he's, he's writing, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, to the, the diaspora, right? The 12 tribes, Jewish Christians, who are dispersed abroad. And so that's where we get our title, right? It's, it's real faith. What, what, does, what does real Christianity look like? What do we do? What, what, is, what does authentic walking with God look like? But he's giving those instructions in the context of very difficult times. <clears throat> So that's that's real faith in difficult times. That's living faith is a real faith, and and uh, that's what James is about. For those of you that are that are just joining us today, so let, let's just review. This is a good time to review just to remember where we've been. Okay, uh, James is going to sort of ask us, as it were, a series of questions, and these questions help us to know what is true Christianity really like. What, what, what is uh, authentic walking with God? Uh, look like if we were to see it. And so his first question that, that gets us into the first chapter is, how do you respond to challenges? And, and he's looked at some things like this. How do you respond to trials? How do you respond when you lack wisdom? How do you respond when you're humbled and, and temptation and good things and relationships? So that first uh, chapter is, is trying to, obviously writing to those who are struggling, he's trying to help them to give guidance in the challenges of life. And at the same time, he's demonstrating what real Christians do, how they respond to those sort of things or how they ought to respond. Uh, That led into uh, a second point or a second question, and that is, does your faith lead to godly action? This gets down to to really the the bottom line about real faith versus false, false faith, right? Real faith is what, according to James here? What is it? A little bit louder. Yeah, you're a doer of the word, right? Your faith without works is useless and meaningless because real faith transforms your life. It bears fruit. It does sanctificational things in your heart, making you look more like Christ. So he has a whole series of <clears throat> excuse me, ways that he's coming at this. Being a doer of the word, loving neighbor, not showing partiality. It's your faith producing works, right? And, and that gets us through most of chapter 2. In chapter 3, which we've just looked at recently, he asked this question. How are you doing controlling your mouth? Ugh, that's indicting just thinking about it, isn't it? And uh, he makes the point that your words, keeping your words under control, are the first area of your Christian life that you want to work on. That's his argument. You say, well, why, why not my finances or why not uh, you know, dealing with roles in marriage or something like that? Because, he says, if you get your tongue under control, the rest of your life will be under control too. There, there's something about that connection that God made between our mouth and our heart, right? Our mouth speaks from that which fills the heart, Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. And if that's true, if I can get my words under control, that means that, that my life is probably under control. So... Hang on here. (laughs) All right. Where did he go? Lee was just there, and then he was here. Okay. And then uh, last week we looked at uh, this this final part of chapter 3, and that is what kind of wisdom do you wear? And and, and what James is getting at here is there's sort of two courses you can take in life. And this is not unique. The Psalms talk about this. Jesus talks about it. There's a worldly path, and there's a godly path. 
But he's framing that in the context of wisdom, right? There's a worldly wisdom and then there's a godly wisdom. And we saw that uh, worldly wisdom is fraught with, with selfish ambition and pride and arrogance and, and it leads to uh, broken relationships and unhelpful things. And, and yet we saw he's got this wonderful wit list here in chapter 3, uh, verse where is it? 17. Chapter 3, verse 17. The wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy, and it pursues peace, right? That's how you know a person is wise, when they can go into a situation and bring peace out of calamity. And if as you look at people in your life, if you see a, a wake of peace, right? When Roger's uh, uh, driving his ski boat out here on, on Lake Granbury, he leads a wake behind him, right? And, and that's, that's part of the fun, right? You can do fun things on that wake, okay? What James is saying is a wise person leaves a wake of peaceableness behind them wherever they go. And that's how you know a wise person. Now, think about that in the context of persecution. That's not easy, isn't it? People start putting pressure on you and persecuting you and mistreating you and, and you want to drop the gloves and give it right back to them, don't you? And James is saying, no, that, that's not the way to go. That, that the wisdom of God is to handle those things in a way that bring peace as much as possible. Okay? Well, that leads us to James chapter 4, verse 1. This is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. I teach, I've taught this dozens and dozens of times in our counseling training and our discipleship training with our students. So um, I want you to see with me one of the most applicable parts of the Bible right here. Okay, you ready? Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Okay, look up for a second. Here's what, you, here's what he says. Do you want to know why you fight? Now, how many of you have conflict in your home, in your marriage, with your children? Your children have conflict with, the, with other children, right? Conflict at school, conflict on the basketball court, on the soccer field, in the church, at work, right? You're, is your arm tired or, or you're just all the above, right? Just all the above, Pastor Keith, right? Okay, so here's the question. Here's the next question. How do you handle conflict? Now, this is, I just want to warn you right now, um, you may want to leave. You may want, you, and that's one, of the, that's one of the wrong ways we handle conflict, actually, we leave, okay, so that, well, that's, that's for free. But now, th- this is in your kitchen, in your face, personal. The, James is going gonna, is gonna to get into our living rooms, and he's going to make some observations that are hard to hear. Um, but I'll tell you what, this, this is so, I'll tell you, I, I learned the, the principles of this verse, I learned way back in graduate school, uh, in seminary. And, um, th- I'll tell you right now, this saved my marriage before I had a marriage. It did. Um, and, uh, so, so I want to, I want to, I want to take you there and then let's talk about how we handle conflict because how a person handles conflict verifies or calls into question their Christianity. Whew, that hurts, doesn't it? So let's look at this, okay? Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? You ready? Here it is. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now, do you see that little word pleasures there? You see that? 
some of your versions may, may have a different word there. Uh, what is, anybody have an ESV? What does ESV say, uh, Noah? Uh, what would you say, John? Passions. What would you say, Noah? Passions. Okay, anybody have a different version? Lusts. Okay, lust, passions, uh, pleasures. Okay, we're looking at verse 1 now, okay? What is the source, right? Is not the source your pleasures, your passions that wage war on your members? Now, now, that little word passion, that little word pleasure, let me explain that to you, okay? That refers to the feeling you get when you get what you want, the feeling you get when you get what you want. See, it just rolls off the tongue, right? The feeling you get when you get what you want. You know that. Guys, if we go up to Cabela's, if we go up to Cabela's, right, and we go to the firearm counter, which I think is about a half a mile long, right, Roger? It's, it's, like, it's, it's longer than some runways. Uh, and, and, and we just spend the day gloriously window shopping, uh, and we find that special piece, right? And we, uh, we turn to the wife who's patiently waiting somewhere for us. And um, what do you think, sweetheart? She's like, oh, you need to get it, Roger. You've got to get it, Roger. Now, the feeling that Roger gets in that moment is what James is talking about. The feeling you get when you get what you want. Oh, that's why you don't take Ruth. <laughs> is she helping out next door? Is that the thing? Oh, she's at home. Okay, all right. Well, well, Ruth, if you're tuning in, uh, we'll talk about that later. Okay. So, um, or or it's that bass boat. It is, ladies, ladies. You're you're online, and, and you see that perfect bedroom set, that new furniture at wherever you shop for furniture. You're, you're on you're on Pinterest, and you're like, oh, we're going to do this to the living room. And Sweetheart, can we do this to the living room? Sure, we can do this to the living room. You know that feeling. Right, kids, this is, this is that feeling you get on Christmas morning when the box that's wrapped looks like what you've been wanting since, you know, 4th of July. And, uh, and you open it up, and sure enough, okay, that's the, it's the feeling you get when you get what you want. Now, now here's the thing, okay? We, we love that feeling. And James says... That's the problem. You love that feeling too much. You want the feeling of getting what you want too much. Now, there's, is there nothing wrong with getting a new firearm? Absolutely not. Nothing wrong with getting a bass boat or something on Pinterest. Nothing wrong with that. Unless that desire to get what you want, that feeling of gratification when you get what you want, takes over your life. And it begins to control you and make you a poor steward to make you want it more than you may want to honor God in some other way. So what I want to do for you today, we're going to, we're going to take a couple of laps past James 4, okay? Because there's a lot of material here and I don't want to shortchange you. So what I want to do today is I want to walk you frame by... We're going to go to the film room today, gentlemen, okay? Remember, it's Monday morning. The, the Sunday football game has happened. It was, a, it was a tough loss. So we get the team together on Monday morning. We go into the film room. And what do we do all day? We analyze the game. We watch film. So what I want to do is I want to watch some film with you today on your last conflict. Okay, so let, let's just throw out a hypothetical example. Let's say that, that Lisa and I are, are going to paint the house. And paint the house, and uh, and we go down to Lowe's, 
and uh, we go to the paint aisle, and uh, and Pastor Keith goes right to the cheapest um, entry level builder grade paint that's that's uh, about five, what, six six dollars and ninety nine cents per gallon, right? Is that about what it is, right? And so I'm there, and I'm like, sweetheart, economically, this is the thing to do. Okay, and then, um, and then, uh, no, but hey, it's it's the budget, right? It's in it's in the budget, and, and then, and so, and then she's like, well, what if we get the like super double latex primer included thirty year deal? And I'm like, that's like that's like forty nine ninety nine, you know? And okay, well, let's let's we'll figure that out. Let, let's go talk about colors, right? Now, ladies, you need to understand this. Men only see in like eight colors. Okay, you remember when we were kids in kindergarten and, and you had to, you had to get your first box of crayons for your kids and it was like, it was like the eight colors, you know, you got blue, green, yellow, red, right? The basic primary colors, right? That's how guys see the world. Uh, women, on the other hand, see color in 16.7 million colors. And most of those colors men can't identify. I don't know what periwinkle or fuchsia is. I'm still trying to figure that out, right? So talk to your, talk to your wife about that. So we go there, and I'm like, sweetheart, blue is the way to go. Blue is, we need a blue kitchen. Blue goes with everything, right? Blue, just it just goes. And she's like, well, I was kind of thinking we'd do this little pastel sort of thing. I saw this on, on some website, and I was talking to my friends about it. I'm going, I can't even pronounce that color, let alone do I want to make my kitchen look like that. And so, th- so there we go, right there. We start having some words. I start saying, hey, you don't care about our finances. That's why you want to get this expensive paint. She says, you're such a cheapskate. And, 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 right, and, 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 and here we are having a meltdown on aisle seven at Lowe's. Have you been following us? <laughs> I, I told you James is going to get into your living room. Okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you about the progression of a conflict. How does that happen? Okay? So we're going to hold our place here in James and just back up a little bit to just hold your place there and turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, if, if, if we were to hit pause on our little meltdown on aisle 7 at Lowe's and you were to come up to me, let, let's, say, let's, say, um, let's say Gary Gary happens to be walking by an aisle 8. He comes around the corner. It's like, oh, hey, Gary, how are you? You know, And, and we, can, we can turn off anger really quickly, can't we? That's another, that's, we'll talk about that, right? Um, so Gary comes up and he says, oh, wh- what's going on? Now, in that moment, be honest with me, what are you inclined to blame the fight on? Right? Well, I- I'll be honest. I- I'm inclined to do exactly what Adam did in Genesis 3. Lord, it was the woman who you gave me, right? If my wife would just, what? Fill it in. See it my way, right? If she would just see the intrinsic wisdom of her leader in her home, right? I mean, that, that's, right? And she might be thinking, he's never painted before. He doesn't understand why builder grade paint is builder grade paint, right? Because, you know, the builders are gone. And, and about the next week is when you need to repaint, right? That's it's the same with builder grade window. Builder grade anything means it's not going to last very long, right? And she's thinking, yeah, well, yeah, it's cheaper, but then you don't have to repaint in six months, right? It's, that's what she's thinking. 
And if you're like us, you're inclined to blame the conflict on the other person that's disagreeing with you. Right? Can we just agree with that? That's, that's what we're inclined to do. Now, now, what James wants to do is rescue us from the fallacy of that outlook. He wants to show us that that is not the cause of the conflict. Okay, so I'm going to say this. A disagreement is the occasion for the conflict, not the cause. Okay, the disagreement is the occasion for the, context, for the conflict. It's the context of the conflict. It's not the cause. It's not the reason. Okay, now let me prove that to you. Are you in, are you in 2 Corinthians? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he die on the cross? Look at chapter 2, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Let's get the numbers right here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Listen to why Jesus died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for who? But instead, they're going to live for Jesus, right? Him who died and rose again on their behalf. So, so here's the deal. Jesus died on the cross to rescue us from the bondage and the destruction and the horror of living for yourself. You say, um, living for yourself is fun. How's that bondage? Well, you know how it is, right? You live for yourself. You serve yourself. You, you look out for yourself, right? And that's, that's really fun, right? You know, you go in and you buy the boat without talking to the wife. And you've got that, that passion moment where the feeling you get when you get what you want, you're driving home, you got that thing pulling behind the truck and you pull into the driveway, and all of a sudden, that feeling changes dramatically when your wife comes out with a shocked look on her face and says, what on earth did you do? And all of a sudden, you've got problems in your marriage now, right? See, living for yourself destroys relationships, doesn't it? destroys relationships. So James is going to say our conflicts don't actually start in a disagreement. They start in our hearts. They start with what it says here, living for ourself. And when we live for ourself, everything goes wrong. Jesus came and died on the cross to rescue us from living for ourselves so that we could instead live for him. So the next time someone asks you, why did Jesus die on the cross? I mean, you might say to forgive me of my sin, to make atonement, redemption, adoption, all of that would be valid. But, but, but here's, here's something. I just found this connects with people. Okay, if you're sharing the gospel with somebody, try this on for size sometimes. Uh, why did Jesus die on the cross? He died on the cross to rescue you from you. What do you mean, rescue me from me? Well, the Bible says because of our sin, we live for ourselves. We think about ourselves. We buy what we want. We do what we want to do. We be our own boss, make up our own rules. And that brings all manner of consequences to life. It destroys marriages. It destroys relationships. It leads people into financial bondage and, and all the rest. And, and worst of all, the broad road leads to destruction, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. So this is where conflict starts. Right? Long before I got in the car to drive with Lowe's with Lisa, long before we got to aisle 7, long before we started thinking about the paint color, there's something going on in my heart, right? Who am I living for? Am I living 
for Jesus who died and rose again on my behalf or am I still living for myself the reason that Jesus died and came to rescue me, right? Uh, biblical counselors know this, right? There's only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing yourself, right? If we back up into chapter 5, verse 9, Paul starts this little paragraph here by saying this. Uh, chapter 5, verse 9, he says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, meaning whether we're in heaven or here on earth, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. See, that's, the, that's what James is getting at. The mark of a Christian is somebody who pleases God because that's what the gospel is about, rescuing you from you so that you stop living for yourself and you start living for your Savior. Okay, So in a conflict, say we're watching film, right? We're, we're watching the conflict develop. How did the conflict happen on aisle 7 at Lowe's? It started in my heart. Because in the moment that I'm demanding my way to my wife, am I seeking to please Jesus or am I seeking to please myself? I'm pleasing myself, aren't I? Okay, So we can call that the disposition. And I, I should have told you, you're going to get to draw and write some stuff on your notes there. You have kind of a, a flowchart looking thing here. So just remember, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a former recovering engineer. I can't get away from flowcharts. So. Okay, number two, disposition then leads to desires. Now this takes us to our text in James. So I told you to hold your place, so, so go back there. What is James saying? Just to remind you, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures, your passions that wage war in your members? What he says is, there is a war in your heart. Okay? What's the war? The war is, which direction are you going to live? Are you going to live for yourself or are you going to live for Jesus? Are you going to seek to honor God in every moment or are you going to seek to get what you want in every moment? And that causes a, a spiritual World War III in your heart, doesn't it? You, you know that. You, you have a conscience and you're sitting there and you're looking at that bass boat and you're going, oh. And you're dreaming about being on Lake Granbury, right? You're, you're dreaming about early mornings, calm water, birds chirping and, and pulling in bass out, right? That's what you're thinking about. And then in that moment, something abruptly interrupts, interrupts your dream. And that's the look on your wife's face. And then you're like, we can't really afford that. We have some other bills to pay. We probably should pay off uh, those other debts first. And, and you know, the, the other three boats I have are probably really sufficient. And, and you, right? And, and, right? And now you've got a war. And the salesman at Cabela's is not going to help you to win that war, is he? And that's what he's saying. There's a war. Now look at this. You love, see, we are in love with getting our way. That's what James is saying. This is Burger King theology, right? We want our way right away. And that's, and that's what, that's what creates the problem. See, look at this. He says, it's not the source, your pleasures, right? You, you love the feeling you get when you get what you want. Look at verse 2 now, okay? Here's, here's the schematic. You lust, and that word just means you want something really bad. You lust, you want something really bad, and you do not have it, so what? You commit, say it, murder. Murder? What's murder doing in this? He's saying this is the source of your conflict. It can be as mild and as normal 
as little tiffs you get in with your spouse at Lowe's, it can be as high-handed and violent as first-degree murder. But the cause, according to James, is always the same. You and I love to get our way. We want something so bad, and we don't get it, so we react in all kinds of sinful anger and conflict. You get that? Your anger is a warning system that you want something too much. Do you get that? That's what he's saying. It's a warning system. I want something too much. Um, What should a Christian want more than anything else? What's like the ultimate, like, this is what I'm living for. This is what I want more than anything else. What is it? To all to the glory of God, right? We read it, right? To please Him. To live for Him. And let me just ask you this. Do you think that if I was wanting to honor God more than anything else, I was wanting to honor Jesus more than anything else, I was wanting to glorify God more than anything else, do you think I would have reacted like that to Lisa and Lowe's? Probably not. Because I would think, you know what, I can say that, I can get ugly with her, but that doesn't honor my Savior. That's living for me. So, so here's a, do, do a little exercise with me, okay? Think about a conflict that happened this last week, okay? All of you had conflict this last week. Just think about one that happened this last week, okay? Just kind of get it in your mind, maybe something at work. With, just doesn't have to be big. Ask yourself this question. What did I want that I wasn't getting? You got it? There's behind every conflict is something that you're not getting. And that's what James is saying here. He's helping us. See, see, we are a walking war of wants. Right? We, We want things and when we don't get them. And that's what he's saying. He's saying it's those lusts, those desires, those pleasures. So it starts with... What direction is my heart aimed at, right? What's the trajectory of my heart? Pleasing God or pleasing myself? Then that filters down into desires. James isn't saying you can't want a bass boat. He's not saying you can't want a new firearm or a new living room set or something on, on uh, 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 what's the other website? The um, t- Help me out, ladies here. I'm not good with the uh, Pinterest or what's, what's the other one? Um, Amazon. Etsy, yeah, yeah, okay, right. It's not wrong to want something on that, but when that thing becomes a demand instead of just, oh, that would be nice, look out. Because if you don't get what you want, uh, conflict is coming. You know, uh, we'll get we'll get to this next week, but there, there's sort of two litmus tests. How do you know if what I want has become too important, right? So, so, desires have this tendency to jump the fence, right? See, on this side of the fence, they're just, I would like, I would want, it would be nice, uh, it would be great. But sometimes wants jump the fence to be a demand. I have to have it. I'm going to get it. No one's going to stop me. Um, it's bad stewardship. I don't care. I'll get a loan. Yeah, my precious, right? This is, this is, this is I'm going to die on this hill. Uh, my kitchen will be blue and not fuchsia. And when I think like that, there's a conflict that's coming. So here's the litmus test. 
How do you know if a desire has become a demand? How do you know if what you want has become too important to you? Are you willing to sin to get it? Do you sin when you don't get it? Those are the two tests, right? How do I know if a desire has become a demand, it's become too important? Am I willing to sin to get it? Do I sin when I don't get it? Right? So there's a front-end test, there's a back-end test. Okay, so disposition leads to desires, right? What do I want? That feeling I get when I get what I want. And that leads, thirdly, to a difference. A difference. What's a difference? Um, you know, God, those of you that are married, God loves you enough to make sure that you didn't marry somebody just like you. And even though you might think, that, oh, she likes to do a lot of the same things and he likes to do a lot of the, and you know, then you're married a year or two and you're like, what's up with that? You know, what? I can't believe that they like that or I can't believe that they prefer that or I can't believe that they don't like that that I like, and Right? There's differences, difference of backgrounds, difference of opinions, difference of preferences. Uh, we, we were joking at the table last night. In, in, the, in the Boyd family, where, where Lisa's family, in the Boyd family, if they're serving pasta, they will slap down a heap of pasta that, that, uh, that, that competes with, like, the Eiffel Tower. I mean, it, it's, just, it's just this big mound of... Right, and it, it's and there might be a couple of meatballs on top, but it's this big like pasta. This is like carb heaven, right? This is like a three thousand calories of carbs right there on your plate. Um, I remember the first time that I went, we, we were barely getting to know each other, and they invited me over for dinner, and they slapped down this big old thing of pasta. And I'll tell you the I'll tell you the longer story another time, but um, in the Palmer family, uh, pasta is like a like a condiment almost. You know, it kind of just goes on the side. Uh, now, if it's a steak, Lisa had to get used to this. You know, in the Boyd family, a steak is like a condiment. In the Palmer family, the steak takes up your whole plate and lops over the, the sides, you know, because it's a big old deal. So it's a, anyway, so that's more than you wanted to know. But there's differences, right? Your spouse is different. Your kids are different. You know that, or your kids are different, right? You know, they're not the same and they don't have the same preferences. They don't have the same emotions. And, and, and those differences lead to a disagreement, right? Because paint colors and boat preferences and how we spend money and what color we paint the kitchen and where do we go on vacation and how often do we see your family and, right? What do we do on the holiday? How do we handle this discipline situation? Do we do this sport? Do we let them do sports five days a week or one days a week or three days a week? Those are all things that we've all, all dealing with right now, right? And that disagreement that comes from our differences, as I mentioned, is the heart-revealing occasion, not the cause of your conflict. See, just like Adam and Eve, nothing has changed, right? When Adam sinned and when Eve sinned in the garden, they didn't say, you know what, God? You're right. We didn't listen to you. We listened to the snake. He deceived us. He said lies about you. We believed the lies and we sinned. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's not what they did. God came to Adam and said, what happened? She did it. It's the woman that you gave me. He goes to Eve. Eve, what happened? The serpent, Satan did it. It's Satan's fault. It's not my fault. And that's what we do, right? We are prone to point the finger at other people in regard to conflict. It's because they like too much pasta and not enough steak. 
It's like she likes those colors that I can't even pronounce and I can't afford the paint and we got blue builder grade it, and, and, and a thousand things just like that. And I want you to see, guys, that that is the occasion for the conflict. It's not the cause. I'm going to say this and you, you tell me if I'm wrong, okay? I think that godly Christian people can talk through their differences in a way that glorifies God and brings an equitable solution. I think that's true. And that's what Paul says in Philippians to the gals that were kind of getting on each other, right? That's what he says to the Corinthians. You read the New Testament. The New Testament is like a conflict resolution manual because that's what we do best, right, is we have conflict. So so here's the thing. However different you might think your spouse is or your kids are or your your mom or what in christ we can respond in a way that glorifies god and brings a a um an honoring to god response but i'm gonna tell you this it will take your own death to produce that because the hardest thing that the gospel will ask you to do to resolve your conflict is you have to die toward these things that you're demanding in your life. You have to break the love affair with getting what you want. And that's hard because we all love to. Okay, so disposition, what, what direction is your heart pointed? Desires, what do you want? What's driving you? That word lusts, by the way, that word desire, it, it's, it's the hands on the steering wheel of your heart, right? It's, it's what desires, what wants control me. And you know that. Your wants, my, we all have wants or desires that control us. They, they literally navigate the direction of our life. And those are the things we have to be careful of. So disposition leads to desire. Desire leads to difference. Difference leads to disagreement. Disagreement leads to detonation, right? That's James 4, 2. Look back there. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Boom, there it goes, right? You're envious and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Detonation is the sinful response because you didn't get your way. And detonation, of course, leads to disintegration. What happens when you do that? So, so there I am. I, my, my wife is tearing up on aisle seven at Lowe's because I've just said harsh, selfish, angry things to her about what I think about her opinion. And now all of a sudden, this isn't about painting the house, is it? This is about getting my wife back. You guys know that, that ice that happens in the room in a relationship when this happens? You know what I'm talking about? That that person that you were so warm with, you feel like this wall's been put up, the temperature's dropped. And, and, and if you're like most Christians, there's this conflict that happens. You so want that person back, but you so don't want to admit that you were wrong. And that's the dilemma. And and, uh, Ephesians is going to say, if you let the sun go down on your anger, 
You don't, this is, this is red alert. This is like someone's drowning in the pool. This is a three alarm fire situation when detonation and disintegration happens. And if you don't fix it, the fire is going to get even bigger and out of control. Uh, you don't need to turn there, but, but James, or Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 says, when this happens, do not let the sun go down on your anger, meaning you've got to deal with this. You've got to fix this right away. You say, well, why do I got to fix it right away? I don't want to talk to her. I don't want to talk to him. He's being selfish. He's this, he's that. She's this, she's that. I know. But if you don't do that, verse 27 says this, you give the devil an opportunity. When you don't deal with your conflict in a biblical way, you give the devil an opportunity in that relationship. Um, I've been doing marriage counseling for well over a decade. And um, several years into it, I, I remember I had this moment. Um, the, there's these couples, right? And they don't even want to be with each other. They can barely stand to be in the same room in some cases. They can't say nice things. They're all... And, and I, I, I just out of frustration, I asked one of them, I said, um, is that what your wedding day was like? You know, th- that day that you said I do? D- did you want to be in the same room with her there with the dress and all that? Or did you, right? No one's like that. On their wedding day, it's I can't wait to be with you. And oh, I love you. And we're going to go live forever together. And, and, they, and sometimes even just a few months later or a few years later, it's like they can barely stand to be in the same room. And as a pastor and a counselor, I scratch my head and go, what happened? How does that happen? And then one day it hit me. It's a satanic reality. Because when couples do what all couples do, which is all couples fight, and some of you may be thinking, oh, you know, maybe someday I get to the place where I don't fight. No, no, no. All couples fight. Sinners say I do, right? Then one sinner marries another sinner. They have little sinners. That's marriage. That's family. Um, the issue is not we get to a place where we never fight or we always agree on everything. The issue is when you have conflict, what do you do about it? And if you let the sun go down on your anger, you give an occasion for bitterness. If you give bitterness, you give the devil an opportunity. And once the devil has an opportunity in your marriage, this person that you couldn't wait to spend the rest of your life with will turn into a person that you can't even stand to be around. That's the conclusion. Only a satanic explanation can explain it. And that totally changed how I think about counseling because it's like, okay, well, if that's the problem, we can change that, right? A couple can remove the root of bitterness. They can deal with anger. They can learn to confess and forgive and prefer one another is more important and put to death these, these demands and lusts and living. See, the gospel is about rescuing you from you. And it changes us. So, um, do you see yourself in this? Can you look back at your last conflict and see that chart in your conflict? I hope you can, and I hope that you'll realize that we're prone to blame the difference and the disagreement. That's the problem. And and you know what? And I'll, what? When something like this happens, what's the first thing we want to do to try to fix it? We want to go right here and explain why my way is better than her way. And that's how we go to resolve it. And you know what God says? Those middle elements of difference and disagreement, those are the least important elements to deal with. That's the last thing you deal with. 
You need to deal with your heart first. That's disposition and desires. Then you need to restore the relationship. That's detonation and disintegration. And then once your heart is right and once your relationship is restored, then you sit down and you talk about what color to paint the kitchen. Does that make sense? You've got to deal with your heart first. And um, so we will come back next time and talk about how we do that. Okay, but for now... There's enough here to think about how we can grow and change in regard to our conflicts. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, these verses that are indicting. They, they sting. But how we need these reminders. Uh, Lord, we confess our selfishness is behind every conflict. Our love of getting our way is what trips us up most often. We confess that we often walk over people and don't consider their opinions as very important because we're so set, we're so stubborn. Lord, thank you that the gospel rescues us from living for ourselves. And we just confess that, Lord. We don't want to live for ourselves. We want to live for you. That's what you saved us for. And even as we, uh, as we go into this week, help us to identify the things, the desires in our lives that tend to control us. We all have them. What are the things that tend to rule us? Lord, might we, might we take those to the foot of the cross and ask that you would crucify them, that we would die to these demands so that we can be freed in the gospel to live for you, to glorify you, to, to live considering others as more important than ourselves. What, what, a, what a work we need in our hearts that, that we would find more joy in letting the other person have their way than in demanding our own. We can't help but think that that's what Jesus did. He, he came uh, to earth to live and die in our place uh, and that that is an example uh, in Philippians of how we consider one another as more important. Lord, we want to be more like Christ, so, so take this into our kitchens, into our living rooms, into our cars, into our schools, our, our soccer fields and our workplaces, that we might live for you and not ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.